0: All right, so um, um, who who are we? Well, I am Arun Gupta. I am one of the principal open source technologists at Amazon. Uh, My focus particularly is on all open source technologies that are around containers. I also represent AWS uh, on the CNCF uh, governing board, um, and I'll let the panelists introduce themselves.
1: Sure. Um, I would... uh, 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 uh,
0: the mic is not on. The handheld is not on here. Like that? No.
1: Mike. Oh, this one works. Hi. Okay. Is it better? Oh, yeah, that works. OK. Uh, so hi, everybody. I'm Patrick Chanazon from Docker. I'm a Chief Developer Advocate at Docker. Uh, I've been involved in the creation of OCI uh, with Chris here. Uh, I'm also representative of uh, Docker at the CNCF. Uh, Technical oversight or at the CNCF board uh, with uh, Arun and Chris. Uh, That's it.
2: My name is uh, Chris Anisik. I serve as uh, CEO for the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Uh, As Patrick mentioned, uh, we were involved with the kind of creation of the Open Container Initiative, or otherwise known as OCI, where I serve as executive director there, and I'm involved with a bunch of other kind of Linux Foundation. Uh, efforts been involved in open source for a long time from Linux-related things to JVM to, uh, I guess, cloud-native things these days. Cool.
3: Um, I'm Chris Nova. I work at Heptio. Uh, I do a ton of open source work in the Kubernetes space. Um, Done some work around Docker. uh, Contribute to Go. Write a lot of Go. I wrote a book. (laughs) Apparently, I'm important. I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let, let me start with the low ball first, Okay. Um, what is one word that would define you as a person? And what do you think is one word that would define the state of containers today? So Chris, why don't we start with you?
3: Okay. Uh, so one word to define me, um, I would say adventure. Uh, I'm super into adventures both in tech and in like real life. Um, and then one word to define containers, I would say, don't hate me on this one, but I would say hard. um, Particularly because every person I talk to, like the first thing is like, okay, I have to go through this exercise of learning what is the container and how to use it and like all the stuff that comes with it. So I think that's a good word. Okay.
2: Cool. So one word to describe me, uh, you know, maybe to continue with Chris's uh, adventure theme, uh, wanderlust, you know, just before this panel, uh, you know, I, I, I'm kind of lucky to do a bunch of travel. So I checked my trip at data, and I visited sixty-five countries in the last uh, something like eight, uh, eight years. And so my goal is to do hundred. And I think, you know, the wanderlust not only applies to just travel. It's, uh, you know, I've been fortunate to work with a bunch of different open source communities. And one of the best things about open source is it exposes you to people from all over, different types of technologies. And so it's something that's always, uh, you know, something that I've enjoyed. So. Uh, in terms of word to describe containers, we are joking about this earlier, but I'm gonna go out and say uh, it's, it's getting a little bit more boring, and, and boring in a sense where things are maturing. Um, I think uh, you know, containers uh, are... <laughs> yeah, my... You took his <laughs> word! <laughs> I thought your word was gonna be docker, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, but I think containers are becoming more mature and uh, will be less kind of, uh, you're going basically, containers will just be there, and you're focusing on stuff.
1: Wow, yep. pretty good. Uh, so uh, a word for myself, uh, it would be curious. Uh, I always want to learn new stuff. And I, in my career, I move from company to company uh, to learn new things. Uh, and to talk about the container world, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, <laughs> I had the same word, maturing. Uh, yeah. A few years ago, when we all started uh, uh, playing with containers, a lot of the talks at these conferences uh, were about uh, what is the technology, how you can use it. Uh, And today, a lot of the talks that I see that are the most interesting at conferences, especially conferences like this, uh, is more about how do people use it to create value. Uh, And I think right now we're at the phase where the technology has matured a lot. Uh, as Chris said, there are still some things that are hard to do, but uh, it's getting easier and easier. Uh, and right now, the focus is really on sharing experience between uh, practitioners about how they create value out of it.
0: Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I agree. You know, I mean, if uh, there is definitely a lot of work that we need to do to educate people on the value of containers. Uh, I agree, it is hard. I agree, it's maturing as well. But there is still, you know, a lot of times we visit the customers. It's like what is the problem that you're trying to solve? Is containers your golden hammer that you, know, you want to solve it with? So I think that's the key part that we want to understand and help our customers understand. That's a very important part. Now, on a personal level, the word that describes me is passion. Um, I think life is too boring you know, if there is no passion in it. So whatever I do, whether it's work, whether it's my personal life, um, I do a lot of running. I do run for passion. I do, I do a lot of open source work. That's my passion. That's the reason I came to AWS. Yes. Particularly in the open source team. So I think that's super exciting to me. That's what describes me. And the way I look at the state of containers today, if I were to use one word, I would say enabler. You know, I mean, there were so many issues before containers where we will, I mean, I've been into multiple fights between Java E versus Spring, and those fights will <laughs> go on forever. You know, I mean, but right, the point yes. is, <laughs> yeah. and Patrick and I used to fight, you know, <laughs> but now we have a common language to talk in the sense, you know what, the discussions have gone at a level where we're saying, you know what, let's do what you want to do. Let's enable you at a container level. Now, you have a container level. Now, let's take that as a base layer, and that's a given. So I think that's, that's what I feel excited about, because it really allows you to package your applications together at one artifact, and let's run with it. So that, that's how I see it. Very cool. OK. Um, we had open, we have had open source for a while, and I, I mean, next year essentially we're going to be doing the 20th anniversary of open source. You know, uh, OSCON, OSI um, are planning big celebrations around it. What's there in the? I mean, and there are few technologies that have been driven by open source, but if you look at the container industry today, that is heavily driven by open source, and maybe part of the blame, so to say, goes to Docker because that's how that's sort of their genesis. It started from uh, open source. So tell me why, um, why open source is so relevant in the container industry.
1: Uh, yeah, so my perspective on that is uh, containers have existed since a long time. Uh, as many of us know, they were used in lots of different places, uh, but they were hard to use. Um, there's been the, the genius of Solomon for design when he, he, uh, he, he put together a union file system, we see groups and namespaces in an easy to use user interface. So that was the original Docker from four years ago. But the thing is, Docker evolved with the community. It was built with the whole community and the whole industry rallied around it. So Docker was really built by all of us. Uh, And and it went to a point when uh, a few years ago we said hey this is becoming so important lots of uh, companies are betting their future strategy on it. Uh, We need to have some standards around it and so we created OCI uh, with a lot of the industry uh, uh, partners in there. Uh, And then later on uh, we created the CNCF for lots of the different components. Right now, we, we had a, a lot of effort into componentizing Docker uh, into different components so that people can build their own thing with them, uh, so it's the Mobi project. So I'd say with uh, projects like all the projects in CNCF plus the projects in Mobi, uh, we see a lot of innovation in the container space, and then uh, each one of us as companies uh, productize that in a different way.
0: Why open source?: Why open source matters in the container life? Right? I mean we, we have had we have lived through the you know death star and all those protocols you know I've been into WSI W3C standard bodies which was completely co- closed source why open source matters here I think that that's the part I wanna understand.
3: I can try to answer that. So I think if you look at it on a technical level, like what is a container and how do containers work? Like implicitly, you're gonna be dealing with a lot of other open source tools, right? So uh, like if you look at like a container, like it's, it's a system process that's like really hyped up. And in most cases, that's a Linux system process, right? Uh, Linux is open source and when we were going through the exercise of trying to port Docker to FreeBSD, most of my work was just like reading FreeBSD man pages and that's all open source. So I mean, to take an already open source idea and extend Mm -hmm. it and make that closed source is frankly kind of bass-ackwards.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Like, uh, open source as one is probably the, the, the dominant kind of collaborative model for you to basically work together with a bunch of different companies who compete at some level, but at least you decide here's some base set of code that we agree is kind of the uh, common thing we don't want to compete on, that that model has just basically won out. So I don't think you could out-innovate what you could do in open source land.
0: Uh, yeah, I agree. And I, th- I think the part of the fact also is the collaboration, as you know, as Chris, you pointed out, is a lot easier. So... You have been involved particularly on your side. You, know, you started your career in the open source field. You know, so you want to elaborate a little bit on that. You know, what got you excited about this part of it?
3: About containers in general?
0: Uh, containers and open source and uh, how you have been building ecosystem around sure. open source. Yeah.
3: So open source has always been special to me because that's really how I learned. Right? Like it, no, I, I didn't really have a formal training. I was kicked out of college for hacking. So like, the open source community was like, very much my bread and butter growing up as a software engineer. And so I've taken that idea and really implemented it in like to all aspects of my life. Like I put that in like relationships with my family members and everywhere else. So to me when I like look at an open source project it represents so much more than just like an Apache 2 license for instance, it's like this idea and it's like there's this community and this like sort of scientific approach of like I'm going to fail publicly and that's okay. In fact we're going to encourage that. So in my career, like, it's everywhere else in my life, like, I very much agree that that's something I want to like, strive for and encourage.
0: That is pretty cool. You know, we do a lot of technology workshops for kids around the world, I don't know, nonprofit. And there, you know, we talk to kids, you know, let's hack Scratch, for example, which is open source. And they ask us, what do you mean by open source? You know, we don't want to get them bogged down by the details of Apache 2 license and all. You know, my son, you know, who's a high schooler, he says open source means source code is out in the web, on, on GitHub somewhere, and the thing doesn't work. I will clone the repo, I'll fix it, and I will send a pull request and I'm done. You know. And that's the attitude that we want to see this, and I think that's where you are coming from as well.
3: Absolutely, and I think it's important to say, like, and I tweeted about this the other day, like, there's a big difference between having an open source mentality and an open source community, and then also having public source code that only you contribute to. So, to me, open source is this idea of we will share everything from architectural decisions and technical decisions, and even just like, what do we want the project to look and feel like, or even solve. It's a community effort and not just like a single person or a single entity.
0: And sharing is absolutely caring. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Um, now, uh, let me ask another question. So let's, let's take a twist on that, <laughs> if I can get my bone back. <laughs> Thank you. All right, I wanted to throw a bone to these guys. Anyway, so there is a GitHub repo sitting over there. And yeah, cool. now you can clone the repo. I can run a single node cluster. Um, our customers want to see high availability. Our customers want to see reliability. Our customers want to see scalability. Uh, how do you strike the balance, essentially, between usability and depth and SLA and visibility? You know, what is the value provided by a vendor, essentially, you know, to those open source projects? You know, how do you strike the balance, basically, between contribution and to your customers? Yeah, so, uh,
1: I can start on this one. Yeah. So what you, what you just described is the, uh, the basis of Docker's business model. Uh, so, <laughs> so we're, we're, we're uh, innovating in the open and, and co, uh, uh, I'd say collaborating with all our competitors uh, on the common open source code base. With all these components, but when you want to run your containers in production, you need to uh, you need to have uh, like certification for the underlying infrastructure, certification of containers. Uh, you have to have monitoring, logging, uh, networking, <laughs> storage, all that stuff, all set up and validated. Uh, and that's what we're selling with Docker Enterprise Edition. So we collaborate with uh, everybody, including our competitors, uh, on the open source bits, and then uh, we build higher level value with the enterprise edition.
3: Yeah, I mean I think you see this pattern a lot in Kubernetes too and I'll let you talk in a second I promise I know I've been talking a lot um, where it's like, like the community sort of defines the implementation of what the technology needs to implement and then the vendor comes in and sort of gets to have their opinionated implementation in that, in that sense. Anyway, go for it. Chris.
2: I mean, you know, in open source vendors basically make their money via generally like a packaging play or so maybe like additional features depending if it's like a, like an open core uh, play. But you know, Docker I think is a great example of packaging up a variety of different components and, and making it easy to to use and people gladly pay um, uh, for it. Um, you know, one, one interesting thing we're seeing in CNCF is uh, I'm sure some of you uh, have come across that uh, lovely kind of landscape diagram that we've kind of developed, right? It's uh, good and bad. Like it, people love it and hate it. But uh, I guess I'm kind of doing Gartner's job for them, but uh, in, in essence, like the, the whole point of that is to show that you know, there are different approaches, open and closed, for different, different aspects of cloud-native, right? Uh, it's up to vendors and folks to take those pieces a la carte and package them up into something useful that people want to pay for, and I think that's the role of kind of vendors in at least our, our kind of ecosystem.
0: Yeah, and if I were to give a little bit of an AWS perspective over there, I mean, Kubernetes existed, you know, I mean, it has been existing for three years, when we started ECS, essentially, the reason we started is because our customers were asking us, give us a solution to build something with Docker. You know, Kubernetes was too early in the cycle for us to take mainstream, so we started building ECS. Our customers loved it. If you remember the slide that Andy showed this morning on the keynote, you know, there were like 150-odd customers that are using ECS very actively. But now, as customers have asked us, you know, okay, you know what Kubernetes matters to us? This morning, we announced EKS, that doesn't mean EKS and our ECS are competing services, but it's about offering a choice to the customer. And then we're gonna the main goal of EKS again is to do hundred percent upstream experience, so that we don't want to build anything proprietary, closed source. We're gonna keep contributing it up to upstream, so that in case you wanna do your own EKS, yeah, sure, take the upstream build, run it, and then you know where AWS excels is from the reliability, scalability, high availability, you know, the usual traits that you are expected out of AWS, essentially. So, Chris, I have a question for you, essentially, now. Now, and maybe for uh, Patrick as well. The idea is, if you look at the Mobi, Project Mobi, or if you look at the CNCF landscape, there are about 14 projects today, a lot more in the pipeline that are going to get integrated. If you look at the stack diagram, my head starts spinning. You know, I really have to take my, you know, put a big chart on, like, on a 10 by 10 feet wall. What is the stack that I'm going to use now? Now, what what are we telling our customers? How are we guiding our customers? What is it that they should use? You know, what components are going to work with each other? What sort of certifications are we offering to our customers to make that a little bit easier to consume?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I'll, I'll start, I kind of spoke on this a little bit, so, you know, the whole purpose of that landscape was to demonstrate that there's multiple paths to cloud native, there's just not one set of technologies, like, yes, w- yes, we think that, you know, the projects in CNCF are good, solid, proven options with healthy communities, but there's other good, other open and even closed options that, you know, people are using, so it kind of reflects, I think, the, re- the reality of things. Um, you know, other things that we essentially do is we've launched some efforts around, you know, training, certification. So we have a Kubernetes certification uh, program that we've launched. So we had something like 30, I think 36, or actually more than that now, but 36 certified Kubernetes distros um, that basically offer some, you know, level of guarantee that uh, these things are compatible and work uh, across the different distros. So, um, yeah. It's
1: yeah, and my perspective on that is that... Uh on the open source side, uh, you have an explosion, uh, really a Cumbrian explosion of projects. Uh, there are lots of projects for everything you want to do and you can see that in the CNCF uh, I chart. Uh, you can see that in the in the Mobi project as well. We have tons of projects in there. And the reason we are doing them uh, for us, it's for systems builders. Uh, like things like Linux Kit or InfraKit or ContainerD. They are really for like people who are building their own platforms. Now for customers who just want to run containers, that's where we assemble all these things together into our commercial products. Uh, for example, recently we just added Kubernetes in there, and we are constantly adding new components in there uh, in a packaged way so that they have an, an easy way to uh, consume all that.
0: Okay, well, um, okay, M- makes sense. So. Now we, this panel is about, of course, open source and containers. And um, in the typically, when you are applying, you know, you are deploying your applications to a cloud. You know, say this is a land of lock-in. Um, so h- help me understand. You know, how would is there a future for, say, a closed-source software, particularly in the container land?
2: I mean, going back to that landscape, you look at it, About, I would actually argue more than half of it is there's closed, closed software there. There's plenty of great proprietary options that you could use. And honestly, if you look at the market, uh, customers use a variety. Some customers, depending how advanced they are, may be using more proprietary options than not. Others are using a mix of open source, closed options, and so on. I think it just reflects the reality market. So.
1: Yeah, and I, I want to add to that, a lot of our customers are using Docker for uh, what we call modernization of traditional apps. So typically these are like a Windows net apps, like uh, net is open source now, but yeah, we have mainframe <laughs> applications as well, uh, web logic applications, uh, so Oracle databases. Uh, so in, in the kind of workloads that are going to run in containers, there are tons of proprietary software. Uh, and I think both of them can coexist in there.
3: Yeah, I think both are sort of necessary evils to the other one, mm-hmm. um, and I think you know we all need jobs. We all like have to approach this from a business and marketing perspective. And like, if closed source is the right thing for the right time, then I absolutely think it's a necessary thing for this for this industry. I mean, if you look at tools like Netflix, right? Like, I've never seen the Netflix source code, but I pay for it every night, so it's it's one of the things that like could totally be there. It makes sense.
0: Right, right. And I, again, if I think from the Amazon perspective, you know, we have ECS, which is the closed source. Parts of it are open source. So like the ECS agent, there's the ECS CLI. We are looking at blocks and how we can have you know, an open source scheduler built as part of blocks. So parts of it are open source. So we're giving hooks for our customers to be able to contribute to it. But then you look at EKS, which is fully based on an open source community. So I mean, in my opinion... Um, It's non-controversial. We seem to all agree that there is a future for closed source. It's not the only open source alternative.
2: I mean, sometimes the challenge for closed source stuff, though, is open source does act kind of as a natural commoditization engine, right? So sometimes people will take something that's closed source. They're not happy with the specific thing, build an open source solution. So over time, we we just see this repeat itself in, in the industry. So.
3: Also, I think going with open sources can sometimes be lower of a risk from a business perspective. Like, if you take a gamble on closed source software and for whatever reason it doesn't work out, like you have to like run the risk and the return on that. Yeah. yeah. It depends on the company,
2: too. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah so, this used to be a, a frequent conversation between myself and Stephen Wally when he was working at Docker. He's at Microsoft now. <laughs> Uh, He he, he gave uh, some talks at the Linux Foundation events uh, 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 called uh, open source is not a business model and his argument is that open source is a great production model. So that's a way to collaborate and build software but then the way to monetize it is uh, uh, through uh, uh, subscriptions and and things like that. Yeah. 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 And the the last thing I wanted to add is uh, Talking about locking for Amazon, actually that's uh, that's exactly where where we see our value proposition uh, to our customers. What we provide them is software that runs on top of Amazon, Azure, Google, and in their data center that gives them uh, like some portability uh, uh, without getting locked in. All
0: right. Well, last question, Anna. Before I open it up to the audience, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, if you look at the lay of the land you know how it was 10 years ago people were still building like you know spring boot applications you have uh, not spring boot but That's traditional 10, spring applications years ago. jee well java ee i should i should be politically correct yes. java ee um, or j2ee applications you know ejbs yeah. then going That's through awesome. a painful time <laughs> and if we look at the lay of the land today it's like we are upleveling ourselves those applications are still built but talking at a containers level how do you think the application landscape could possibly look like 10 years from now. And, like, Docker, to me, was sort of the tipping point for the application infrastructure. You know, I mean, a lot of people have been doing containers for a while, but Docker, as you said, Solomon kind of commoditized it, and then he say, okay, you know what? Now everybody can do this. What do we think is going to be the next tipping point or the application building could look like in the years to come?
3: You can take it if you want. Okay, so I
1: have I have some ideas on that, Uh, and uh, and actually it resonates with uh, uh, Andy's keynote this morning, where when he talked about machine learning. Uh, To me, the next stage is uh, when uh, machines are going to read a lot of code, and learn to write code for us, so that we can work at a higher level of abstraction. My whole career has always been about like getting to a higher level of abstraction to build like more useful stuff with less like letting the machine do more work for us. Uh, there are some companies like source D who are like reading all the code on GitHub and trying to build machine learning models. At the end of the day, maybe it will be I provide inputs and outputs and the machine will write a program or maybe I will talk to it or maybe I will like write. The, so. The, the software developer role uh, will more become like a writer or a painter uh, uh, or maybe a theater player. Maybe I'll do I will do some acting and uh, the computer will learn uh, what I want to do with all this data.
0: Yeah, I mean if you think about it, you know it's a user versus builder, yeah. you know, I and mean, that line is kind of you know a bit fuzzy these days.
1: Yeah, and it should get more and more fuzzy. I think uh, everybody will become a builder, uh, but the tools for building. Uh, should be easier to use. Uh, and actually at Docker our, our mission statement is to build tools of mass innovation. So,
3: One of the things I think about a lot, and this just might be me like too late at night or whatever, um, I think we're going to get to a point one day as a species where we actually stop writing code um, and we skip that step and we go directly from software to other software and the whole intermedi- intermediate part of actually representing and encapsulating software in a human readable form won't really be necessary. And sometimes I think about like what that would be like if we were to write like binary code that would just spit out another bi- bit of binary, and the humans were just sitting there massaging all these little executables to make them do what we wanted to do.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean,
2: you know, I spent about a, almost like a decade of my life building developer tooling, and you know, honestly, the stuff that we use today, kind of to the, the reflect on Patrick's point, it's still pretty primitive. Like, yeah. it doesn't really take advantage of. You know the, the the kind of availability of like AI and machine learning stuff that you could like imagine that being imprinted into your like i d or development environment that's just not there yet, so I'm hoping in the next decade uh our development experience is is a lot smarter than kind of just straight up like them Emacs and you know Aww. basic ID. So <laughs> don't, i d so don't hit on
3: emacs now
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Emacs needs AI. <laughs>
0: That's the quote yeah. right there. That's, that's the quote that needs to get tweeted.
1: I use it when there's a, v, a Vim plugin. Oh, uh, there you go. Yeah.
0: Well, I think yeah. if we go back 10 years ago, yeah. I don't think any one of us would have predicted that the containers would be the next big thing. So I think any prediction that we make at this point of time is probably short-lived. You know, Somebody will come up you know, with a machine learning way of writing code, and there you are. In two years, that is all implemented. So to me, the way I look at it is, it's a constant evolution. To me, ten years look out so far out. I can't even think that long. You know, I don't know what, what I'm going to be doing. Mm-hmm. But essentially, to me, the way I look at it is building that upscale components. You know, up, upscale, uh, uh, upstack components. That you know, how do I dump it down further and further and further so that I can do more interesting things? Because I mean, I, I, how many of you have seen the movie Matrix? Never let the humans do the job of a machine, as Patrick was saying. So let the machines do. Let let the GPUs, let your compute instances do all the hard work so that you can focus on the fun thing. I mean, That's sort of my belief, at least. Well, uh, those are all my questions. So at this point of time, I would like to kind of open it up uh, to the audience and see if you have any questions. Well, let me, let me, let me run around with the mic. Well, we're getting recorded, so <laughs> I'm going to take this off my head. It's kind of hurting.
2: Uh, what, what
4: values and successes have you seen of companies that offer proprietary or closed source products that, um, that consider taking them open source?
3: So I, th- I think the question was, what value have we seen in uh, companies that have taken proprietary or closed source products and moving them open, over to open source?
1: Yeah, so, uh, I, <laughs> no, no, I have a very clear example, and one of them is Microsoft. If you're looking at what Microsoft has been doing in the past few years, it's amazing the number of stuff they have open sourced. Uh, the bigger one I would say is .NET and the value they're getting out of it is their new business model is Azure. They want all the workloads in Azure including Linux. They know that lots of developers are developing on Linux and on Macs and if they want these people to use .NET, they needed .NET to run there and so they decided to open source it. And I think it was a very smart decision. .NET is living a renaissance thanks to that now.
0: Uh, uh, I'll give a slightly dated example. In our, um, back in 2005, I was at Sun Microsystems. We used to have this Sun1 application server or Netscape application server. <laughs> it was fully closed source. Patrick was one of the culprits I worked in worked that. that. <laughs> yeah, so Patrick and I were together at that point of time. We took that... Netscape application server from closed source. We announced that 2005 Java 1, we're going to take it open source. And 2006, we released the source code. And from there, literally you know, from like a few downloads, from zero to we reached 5 million downloads in three years. So a lot of it was perspective as well. Uh, it was literally a top-down derivative that, OK, it has to be open source, and everything has to be laid out. So downloads, you know, much wider visibility. Um, we are building this brand-new workshop, which is Kubernetes on AWS workshop. Uh, we are working very actively with our customers, our partners, and we're going to start reaching out to them more actively. One, literally this morning, somebody sent me a pull request with a typo. And every typo really improves the value of the software. And you know, whereas the, I might have missed that typo, so I think that contribution, that community-powered innovation that you see in your software is just immense. I think and similarly again we're looking at blocks for example we're building a daemon set scheduler over there out in the open source but we're hoping our customers will be able to contribute more to it as well.
3: Yeah, I was going to say just echoing what you said Arun. I think there's something to be to be said about when you open source software for you kind of want like you have higher expectations than you would for yourself. When I had originally started Cubicorn, I had it closed source and I released it at GopherCon. And I remember having horrible anxiety the night before, but I was getting ready to show it to people, like worried about things like typos or like what is the user experience gonna be like for them. And the second I clicked that open source button, everybody started like contributing and they had comments and people were opening PRs to fix like typos in their docs. And I mean, sure it was embarrassing, but overall it ultimately led to a better product.
0: Well, I mean, I'll share an internal story um, in the sense that you know, our team was saying, oh, you released this out in the public. You know, what do you mean? You know, is there are typos in it. I said, but that's the beauty of open source. You know, I mean, it's OK you know, because the product is pretty solid. The lab is building. We're evolving with the community. You know, it's completely OK to be transparent. So that's how we are evolving it. I think that's the big value that I see in it personally.
1: Uh, I I wanted to add a few examples. Uh, So one example uh, was uh, when Google uh, created open social with 15 different social networks back in 2007. Uh, When we did that we open sourced uh, the core component that would, uh, the server that would enable all the social networks to implement open social. It was the Apache Shindig project. Uh, And when we did that a few of them implemented it. uh, but then very quickly, Facebook killed all the other social networks, and uh, there was no value in there at all anymore. And so it was an effort to try to use open source as a strategic weapon to get some value out of it, uh, but it failed. So that, that's one example when it failed. And I have so another... You mean
0: Google had that Google Social, Google Plus thing, right? Oh, it was before Google Plus. <laughs> oh, okay, before yeah, yeah. that. Google
1: Plus was the second failure in social networking <laughs> from Google.
0: I, I didn't say that. <laughs> I
1: was involved only in the first one. <laughs> uh, the other example I had is when Netscape uh, uh, was bought by AOL and uh, open sourced uh, Mozilla. Uh, at that time, for AOL bought Netscape for the eyeballs in NetCenter. Uh, they didn't care at all either about the server side that went to Sun, or about the browser that they uh, put into a foundation. And then a few years later, with a Firefox project, it became very successful. And then Google invented that business model based on ads. And browsers suddenly became like a huge source of revenue. And I, I think Netscape wa- or uh, Firefox was doing 100 million in revenue, thanks to Google at that time. And so that, that's an opportunity of where uh, they open source something, but they didn't know what value would come out of it. Oh,
0: let me take this yeah. around. Do we have another handheld that I can run around with
2: the audience? Uh, this question is for Chris. Um, <laughs> with all the stuff that's been announced today, kind um, of, what are your thoughts on what's not going to happen, but where people are going, like with cops, right? Because we, my team, has spent like a lot of time using cops and working with it, and we love it, and it's awesome. And and now with all the stuff that AWS is doing, kind of, where do you think you'll continue to have people that'll just keep on trucking with cops or maybe migrate to some of their, to EKS and things like that?
3: I think it's going to be this really awesome hybrid collaboration between AWS and open source. And like, even if you go to the SIG cluster lifecycle meetings, we've talked about pulling parts of COPS into a library and using that in like various different ways. Like we've even talked about taking it and running it as a controller, like as a a container in Kubernetes itself. So I think like, the code in COPS is great. It does a lot of great things, and I think we're going to continue to see it evolve moving forward. It just might come in a new guise, and then a lot of that might come from, our, from help with our friends at Amazon.
0: And uh, let me shot at it as well. I mean, If you think about this, yes, EKS, we have announced limited preview today. Um, we're going to start onboarding customers in the next few weeks. The GA is not going to be until HA 2018. And with EKS, we will take an opinionated approach in the sense, okay, this is how we're going to run the master. We hope that works for everybody, but that may not work for everybody. So you do need that custom way of doing things. And if you look at the way we have built the workshop today, it is entirely based on COPS today. So essentially, the way I look at the workshop, for example, evolving is, hey, we expect you to run a three master, five worker cluster. You could do this using COPS. You could do this using CloudFormation. You could do this using Terraform. You could do this using... EKS. It doesn't really matter well. to us because the service by itself is going to be very lean. A lot of it is about all about you know the Kubernetes concepts. So I think that's the way I look at it. Uh,
5: so in general, the managed services right, run by AWS, uh, we know RDS, we know uh, some other things. EFS, uh, EFS took a year and a half from Preview to GA. And Kubernetes, I think, is more complex than EFS by comparison. There's so many components like uh, you know, networking, all the layers. How, how long do you think it would really come out of Preview into production quality?
0: So uh, this morning we said uh, EKS is going to be GA first half of 2018. That's what we're looking at. So we're going to start onboarding customers you know, soon. You know, we're hoping in the next few weeks. Um, I've been able to build an EKS cluster. So it is the working code that we're looking at right now. It's not like something shim that we're looking at it. So hopefully start onboarding customers on a limited preview and then uh, do a GA sometime in first half of 2018. That, then it will be accessible to everybody. So um, we understand the pace with which Kubernetes community moves. Um, um, uh, we'll, one of the things that I talked about one of the tenets, core tenets of EKS service is also 100% upstream compatibility so we're going to hire people you know, we would like you to build your Kubernetes career working in open source at Amazon uh,
6: What
0: is the pricing model? Are, are you not allowed to talk about it? The, pre- the, the pricing model is a TBD um, both for EKS um, because essentially when you ask us to provision a uh, highly available control plane. Um, that's what we're going to give. And as part of that, depending upon your region, you will have three masters and HCD. So we're running like six instances for you in the back end. So the pricing model is still being worked upon. And then when we get into the Fargate mode of it, you know, which we again talked about this morning, that pricing is a TBD as well.
3: <laughs> oh my God. She's so good.
0: Well, Uh, we don't talk about competitors in the panel, so you ask me, you know, at a beer, then I can answer that question. (laughs) You're throwing me a bone; I have a bone already. Any other questions around in general about Amazon? Well, I want to introduce Zahida as well. Zahida, give us give give us a second here. So, Zahida heads the open source strategy at Amazon. So, why don't you join us on the panel? If you have any questions around open source, Amazon containers. Let us know.
6: Hi. Uh, I'm, I'm Yaron. Uh, we spoke about open source. And you said that uh, you know, open source avoid locks in. I don't, I don't agree with that statement, because I think you a know, small company develops some open source. You took it. You're not going to maintain it. I think a uh, uh, higher importance is on uh, open APIs, where as a community, you know, we have sort of common APIs around. And that's what we're doing in CNCF, with CNI, CSI now with the serverless community. Uh, so uh, what, first, what do you think about open APIs or open APIs versus open source importance? And the second, in terms of uh, Amazon contribution to open APIs, uh, which has two faults. One is in terms of the licensing model of APIs, because right now they're all covered with copyright laws and you know, a bunch of things that people sort of hack around. You know, we don't want to get to the Oracle and, uh, you know, the situation with uh, Google. And, and second is, uh, you know, what, are you going to be proactive in participating you know, in the um, communities and addressing open APIs? I think she's, she's getting ready to answer the question. <laughs> I see I <laughs> well, challenged you a bit. <laughs> yeah.
5: Yeah. Okay, let me see if I got that question. So, uh, uh, open APIs and uh, around licensing. That's a big part of it one of one of the pieces that you're asking
6: yeah so again there are two aspects to open APIs. One is uh, you know you're market leader in certain aspects you know you have lambda, you have other APIs um, you know one approach that uh, we serve as user would expect is to make sure that uh, people can use those APIs without being uh, you know liable to all sorts of uh, issues you know. A second is participating with the community in sort of standardizing APIs and bringing your opinions, which probably are valuable, into the community.
0: So maybe you can answer the first one. I can answer the second one. I, mean, I, I have some perspective on that. OK. Do you want to get that? No, yeah, sure. Well, um, uh, time. Th- th- talk about open events, for example. And uh, you're aware of that. Mm-hmm. So open events is one of the efforts that's happening in the CNCF serverless working group, where we're trying to define an open event format for how it would um, work on the Lambda functions. You
6: guys haven't participated
0: in well we we uh, well I have been participating, Chris Munns have been participating, so I think your statement is inaccurate in that sense. <laughs> because we have been participating, we have reviewed the paper, we have yeah. partici- we were at the last events group meeting. We will be at the CNC of working group meeting as well. It depends how you define participation. <laughs> yes. Uh- so you you, you want to answer the first part you know how we're gonna be contributing, how sure. uh, the licensing part of it?
5: Yeah sure. And um, I think over the, over the years as an organization, we've been contributing to open source and um, what you haven't seen is that we haven't been talking about it. So um, since about 2005, we've made contributions to a lot of external open source projects and um, to our own repos. And actually, um, you can go and search through AWS uh, repos and Amazon repos. Um, if you go to aws.github.io, and there's an easy way to go through and look at all of the code. Um, And a lot of the licensing that we're working on, so um, as we're making acquisitions and even just looking at our own um, processes that we've gone through recently as well, is moving to much more permissive licenses and and transitioning. So for example, um, even with FreeRTOS as well, there was a, a license that was created by the founder that was a modified version of the MIT license, and that's now been um, transitioned over to uh, the proper MIT license and a permissive license as well. So we're moving to more popular licenses that's opening it up to uh, contributions and much more friendly for the community to participate in
6: it's, not just, that the, uh, it's not, not just in the context of your open source or not. I think it's pretty legitimate to have commercial products, uh, but I think it will be more friendly if the uh, licensing around those APIs of the commercial products are a little more permissive. You know. That if someone says, you know, because Amazon is a market leader, I want to create an EC2-like uh, API, he, he knows that you cannot sue him tomorrow because he's done that for his personal use because he wants to use multi-cloud, for example.
5: Yeah, we'll, we'll take that feedback.
6: <laughs> Next
0: question. This is
5: quite
0: echoes,
4: yeah. yeah. Do you have a question? Totally oh, <coughs> oh, no, I don't. Okay. <laughs> All
1: right. Um, so kind of asking something slightly different, and it's really for... You know, you you folks work with containers, Amazon, all those kind of things, and but you mentioned J2E or Java Enterprise, and um, I cannot stop thinking that in some university around the world we still uh, teach kids or young people this crap. And um, honestly, so I wanted to understand like what's um, you know the role of uh, companies like Amazon or CNCF mm-hmm. or us as individuals into trying to you know, uh, play a role, actually, also in the education. Try to bring, bring those technologies uh, to young people to actually be better professionals in the future.
6: Is that the point?
2: I mean, I, I could at least speak from a CNCF and Linux Foundation perspective. Like, we offer uh, a, a ton of free, you know, training and courses out there from all different types of, you know, not only just like, hey, here's a free intro to Kubernetes, but we have for different languages and, and so on. So we're trying to do our, our part. The problem is each... You know, for younger folks, if we talk at like the academic university level, each curriculum is different. Each program is different, right? Like I, you know, I started, you know, what the hell? Like it was like it was it was, it was a it was a mix of like Lisp and you know C when I started. So it was a mix of you know everyone everyone has different. You know techniques to, to kind of learn and introduce folks to programming at academic level. So from the LF part, we're doing our best in terms of providing free training uh, as much as possible. We also try to partner with universities to expose um, students to open source, which to, we still kind of see as a, a sour point. Like, you know, no one really teaches you how to contribute. You kind of have to go stumble along and then, you know, learn on your own. Like, I started my days in open source contributing to Slack and, and Gentoo but way, way back in the day, about 18 years ago. So you know, things have changed.
3: Also, I just want to say that, like, I think there's a part that we can all play in that, right? Like, like we all know kids, we all know people who are learning, we all know people who are, like, mid-career and they're making a career switch, and, like, there's something to be said about saying, like, hey, you should try to run Linux on the desktop, or, like, hey, you should get into, like, Go or Kubernetes or prescribe whatever you want, but just encouraging people around you and sharing the lessons you've learned is important.
2: Also, like, I mean, th- like, Shit, back in the day, like, we had, like, what, like, Usenet and IRC, maybe, like, kids have, like, Minecraft, YouTube, like, there's so much resources these days, like, it's out of control. Uh, Yeah, I think there are, um, actually, some Take that
6: one. Oh.
5: Um, so there's some interesting programs out there as well, and, um, I was formerly, um, with the Google Open Source Program (coughs) Office, and we set up Summer of Code, which encourages interns to participate, but... You know, even at an individual level, I think the university is really the, you know, um, a lot of the courses that are available are very much kind of still old school technologies. They're not what we're all using here in the cloud. And um, I think there's a lot that can be done in terms of connecting with your alumni and and encouraging participation and getting students to volunteer. Because one of the things we learned through the programs that we ran um, like Summer of Code, is the skills that students, um, that they learn participating in open source. At college, that's not how you're taught. You know, you're kind of focused on delivering um, your coursework. You're not working in a collaborative environment with peer reviews and learning from that process of communicating. So there's a lot to be said for getting people to participate and volunteer in the projects that you're building that are open.
0: So a couple of points I want to make. <clears throat> you said they're still teaching their crap in the university. Yes, they are. Um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't call it crap, though. <laughs> I was responsible for Java EE platform back at Oracle. So <laughs> no personal offense. Um, uh, the, the key point being um, you, you can't have a container. Container is the next level of abstraction. You still need that application to be built first, right? So that's level one, hold on. So that's the first level. Now, I found out this morning, You know, I was sitting in the keynote, I was sitting right next to my colleague, this guy is an education solution architect. His role is only to work with universities across the world, and there are many more like that. Amazon is a big company. There are many more like him that work across the world. And then he was interested, hey, what do you do? I said, I, I do this container thing. What is this container thing? I said, how can I bring that to universities? So I think it's only, it's, it's not if, is when, I think that's how I see it. So uh, it, now that you know everybody, you know every time we go, you know Zaid and I walk around Amazon, we're like, oh, what do you do at CNCF? So more and more, you know, we get involved, particularly from Amazon perspective. These education solution architects I see playing a key role because that is exactly how they are paid. That's one. Second point I want to say is, um, my son got into Minecraft hacking about four and a half years ago. Uh, he came to me one day, Dad, my jar is broken. How do you know what a jar is? Oh, it's a Java program. It's like, oh, you mean that jar is broken? And I'm a Java evangelist, so of course. So I got him introduced to the concept of, you know, yeah, it's okay to hack the code and break it and rip apart the jar, put a new class file in there and see how it works. But then he got all excited. And then I got him the real thing, you know. Then he fired up his eclipse. So about three years ago, well, three years ago he gave a keynote at Java One talking about how pigs fly, because that's the mod that he built. So. And that's the reason we started this workshop. So essentially the idea is we want to make sure the kids understand the basic concept. Mm-hmm. And then from Java 1, that's where the interest developed for him. Last year at DockerCon, he gave a presentation on a project called as MobiCraft because he was aware of Minecraft well. And... I'm a Docker captain, so I would do all the Docker things all the time. He would ask me like that, what is Docker? And there you go, going to school, coming from school, going to grocery. We are having that discussion. And my son really built a simple mod to manage your Docker containers from Minecraft. And then that led to his talk at DockerCon. So a lot of cool things. I think, as Chris said, you know, it's upon us to give that opportunity to tickle that interest in our kid And don't get disappointed if your kid doesn't get excited about it. Not all the kids are like that. So that's the important thing to understand. And in my case, I have never poked him to do this hard enough. But hey, he's coming to me. I'm his dad. So it's my responsibility to work with him. And in the nonprofit, we work with a lot of kids. In the last, I would say, three and a half years or so, actually four years now, uh, we have reached out to over 5,000 kids. And we start with basic concepts like, you know what? Let's do a Fruit Ninja using Scratch and then see how far you go. Yeah, we, we have time, no worries.
4: Oh, great. Um, good, is this? Yeah, this thing's on. Good. Uh, hey, uh, Lee Calcode, um, <coughs> uh, Docker captain, uh, cloud native ambassador. Uh, spent a lot of time with uh, all of the folks up here. Um, got maybe two things to say just really quick to add to, to that. It was, uh, I think more to Chris's point, I was uh, so, I'm in Austin, Texas, so I'll see some of you next week, hopefully at KubeCon. Um, but uh, I was guest lecturing at uh, UT Austin a couple of weeks ago uh, on Docker networking, as it turns out. And uh, the, well, well, this is, I was going to say the kids in the class, and that's, that's just a sign of my age at this point, but that's too bad. Anyway, the, the kids in the class were, were quite excited about uh, learning those things, and I have to give credit to the university professor there. Um, it was his first semester teaching a virtualization course and had invited in quite a few external speakers and I think that that, you know, kudos to, that and to him and his forethought about uh, trying to you know, bring, it, bring in some of that. So that was good. But uh, the, the second thing I wanted to ask was maybe more towards um, Zahida, if I'm pronounced, if I'm not slaughtering. A, the, the. But just okay. super excited about the role that Arun, uh, you know, Adrian, and, and you are playing. Uh, uh, just with respect to open source, I think, I don't know if others share the sentiment, but I'll, I'll sheepishly say that my, my sense of, uh, of AWS's um, taking, taking, taking versus giving, giving, giving has been maybe slanted towards the former versus the latter. And I think that that's, maybe that's an uninformed perspective. It's just my, my perceived sentiment towards how it is that open source is used and maybe um, sold back as a service. Uh, so I'm probably undereducated in that regard, and you guys will help educate there, uh, but, but most notably seeing a, a significant change in terms of that giving back and in terms of opening things up. And, and I guess the, the question therein that I was trying to ask is, uh, you know, we, so my full-time role is at a, a company, SolarWinds, um, headquartered in Austin, Texas. Uh, lots of money that has been made on closed source and really trying to open up their, their minds and their perspectives to being much more open. Sometimes that's uh, source code, sometimes that's just community engagement. Um, uh, but where part of our struggle lies is that folks that have been there a long time are very comfortable with how to monetize closed source and, and so the question is, as you're opening up various aspects of the efforts that you're doing, uh, maybe looking in arrears towards older services that, if I can, if I can use old and AWS in the same, uh, same sentence, but older services that are there, uh, what's, what are the, can you characterize or, or kind of describe the, decision factors that might be involved in either coming back and opening up some of those other services and uh, how you guys think about that?
5: So um, I don't know if you, you know, one of the things that's core to Amazon and AWS is our leadership principles and we have one that's about customer obsession.
4: Fourteen of them. Yeah.
5: Yeah. And customer obsession is a big one. And um, it's customer obsession and it's the customers and the requirements from the customers that's driving what we're doing in open source. So, you know, if there are particular requests that you have, we're listening. And that's really what's um, driving a lot of the decision making. So I don't know if that answers your so, question. Uh, so let me give a couple focus. of more
0: perspective over there. So if you look at Sam Local, for example, and our Sam Local is allows you to run you know test dev or Lambdas on your laptop. That's again done fully in open source. And you know we, the person who is the lead author for SAM Local, I had dinner with him two days before the project was going live, he was having jitters. Because that's not a typical Amazon model. So literally two hours, we're just calming him down. That you know what? If your doc has a bug, it's OK. The bar that we set internally for ourselves is far too high, because our customers expect that of us. So now that is how the cultural change that Zahida and I are saying, you know, that is okay. You know, if you if things are not 101 percent right, you know, let's get them out. Let's get the feedback and work collaboratively with the community. Sometimes when you expose yourself, community acknowledges it, and then they you know be more transparent with you. So that's one example. Second is, I would say EKS again. You know, that's one of the core tenet as I highlighted is is going to be 100 percent compatible. So if I take specific examples in EKS itself. If you look at kubectl today, the way you deploy applications, kubectl has no integration with IAM. And The way you invoke kubectl, you have to smuggle your credentials out of the cluster, and then you have to use your IAM roles. These are two disconnected models. So we are working, for example, with Heptio Labs, essentially, and Chris is going to be very actively involved with that, of building an authenticator. That authenticator is gonna allow you to stick your IAM role right into kubectl uh, itself. Now our goal is we can hopefully integrate that into kubectl upstream or go client, wherever it's the right place. But then uh, that functionality is gonna be available out there. And that's the same thing we're gonna take and implement in our product as well. And you're gonna use the same source code. So definitely the mentality, we, we also need to realize Amazon is a big ship. So it takes a while to change that mentality. So we're taking one step at a time. But, I mean, that's the charter of our team, essentially, you know, to change that perspective. And I think I would really recommend to go visit opensource.amazon.com. That's the right website, right? Yes. So take a look at that website. We talk about all our open source activities. We have a brand-new blog. We have a Twitter handle. Lots of ways by which we're going to be working with our partners on how and where the open source activities are happening. So we highly encourage to get your feedback on that. Right.
5: And we're just kind of the voice externally. So... You know, as a company, there are uh, a whole bunch of champions inside. There's uh, teams that have been involved in all of the compliance and all of the um, releasing of the code uh, over the years as well and all the engineers. So, you know, we're, part of the change that we're bringing about is really infusing the rest of the organization with open source, but a lot of that already exists, and it's also giving them a
0: voice. So, to give you sorry, to give you another example, this morning, like on the AWS the Kubernetes workshop, somebody posted an issue: Are you going to post contributor guideline and you know, on how how can I contribute? What can I contribute? I don't want to make up a contributor guidelines. So that's when we went to the internal champion, Zaida, myself, and that internal champion. His name is Henry Yandel, and you know, three of us discussed. You know what? What is the AWS philosophy? Because. We are doing a lot of things that have never been done in Amazon's history. We are talking about it internally, but we make sure we are all well aligned, and then we put it out in the public because then we are setting a precedence. And then again, that's not like casted in stone. You know, if things need to evolve based upon, again, as Zaheera said, customer obsession, that's the key part.
7: My question is about open source in, in general. Um, so I think when you so it was also related to the landscape or CNCF and landscape diagram. So you have so many open source components there, and uh, you have also these rectangles around these boxes, uh, this framework. So this means they by some specific domains, so to say, messaging or whatever, and. Uh, And the last 10 years, or I don't know, 15 years, uh, I'm always comparing this framework. So, which framework to take, for which purpose, and so on and so forth. And uh, they change over time. So, for example, now with containers, uh, the last thing that we were evaluating was, for example, should we take uh, Kubernetes or should we take Docker Swarm? Okay, this decision is now done. Okay, fine. Uh, But I think this is a general problem. For example, 10 years ago it was, and for example, yeah, maybe not, but uh, okay. Um, okay, maybe ten years ago it was then, for example, J Builder or Eclipse or whatever. So it is very old things or so. The question is also uh, you also said uh, three years ago. I think uh, for Amazon uh, Kubernetes was not mature enough or was not decided was not ready something like that or so. And the question is, is there any? yeah maybe from CNCF or so is there any support or you were also asking for which framework can work which which together so there is something a blueprint which frameworks can work together with which so this would help I think all the other companies so to how to plug the things together so maybe it goes more to CNCF or so but maybe also to Amazon you said open source you have to also the discussion maybe question to
6: all.
2: Yeah, I, I mean that, that landscape diagram is really just more of a a, a map and not necessarily like, a, here's a stack you could download and immediately use and play. It's a set of kind of recommendations for different types of projects in different spaces. Um, we really have the mindset that, you know, CNCF serves its projects and you're not gonna download like a cloud native distro from from our website, right? We rely on our members to actually build products and sell them to people that will actually pay money and you know for them because they actually have derived some value, uh, you know, uh, from it. So, um, you know, our goal is to continually update as update that thing as much as possible. Uh, you know, once a month at least uh, do kind of a refresher and kind of uh, constantly listen to our community to evolve that um, evolve that properly. Um, yeah. Uh, hopefully, I don't know if that answers your specific... Uh... So
0: to give an Amazon angle to that, you know, again, I'm going to go back to the workshop because that's what has been keeping me busy for the last four months. Um, we looked at you know, how, how our customers want to do monitoring with Kubernetes. Now, there are like seven different ways you can do that. But what we did is we picked up three ways, but we're seeing the most prominent one. But if you think the fourth one matters to you, send us a pull request. And that's how we are looking at it. Now, similarly, if you're looking at app scaling, there are like multiple ways by which you can do app scaling. Should I use a, a horizontal part autoscaler? Should I use as CloudWatch metrics? Should I use some other metrics? Uh, how do I do that? You know, so there are lots of ways, I think, and the point is right, that it's really a map. You know, and Amazon is a lot about customer choice. And we give you choices, see what fits your need, and hopefully this workshop and other uh, such material, we got lots of reference architecture, for example, for ECS. Like you want to do build a pipeline. Sure, you have Jenkins in your environment, use Jenkins. You want to use, you don't have nothing in your environment, use CodeStar suite of tools. So from Amazon, absolutely we care about that, and we want to provide guidance to our customers in the best possible way.
1: Yeah, I think we have I'm- time. And just for the Swarm versus Kubernetes question, uh, if you got money uh, in Docker E, you can run both.
0: <laughs> well, that was a long time coming anyway. Thank you. But well, I think we are out of time here already. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. You know, I hope you had a good time. Thanks.